We are continuing our series on Exodus, Egypt out of us. Pray with me as we kind of continue in worship by moving into the sermon. Lord God, thank you so much for the chances to be here together as a Horizon family. We thank you that you are faithful to us, that you are both mother and father to us in so many ways, Lord, and we are thankful for who you are. Lord, I pray that anything that's of me this morning would be quickly forgotten, and that anything that's of you would stick to our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been doing this series where we've been really kind of unpacking Exodus and really looking at what it was like for the Israelites who lived in Egypt and what the world of Egypt was like. Um, and we've been kind of talking about this, like the best way to understand the Israelites that walked through the wilderness is to treat them as they were, which is basically products of an Egyptian culture. They were almost more Egyptian at this point of their history than they were Israelite. And God called them out of Egypt and set about restoring them to what he had called them to be, which was to be his people and which was distinctly different from Egypt. And we've been kind of saying this, like, how did this happen? Well, it didn't happen overnight, right? It took them 40 years in the wilderness to even begin to start to undo, like, the imprint that Egypt had made on them. It was not an easy process. In a lot of ways, despite the drastic measures it took, getting them out of Egypt might have been the easy part. Like, all the plagues and the wonders and the walking through the sea seemed to be almost easier than kind of unraveling the Egypt that was so tied up in their hearts, Getting the Egypt out of them was a more difficult journey. And we've been kind of talking about this in a couple ways. We talked about order, how the Egyptians worshipped order the first week. And then last week, if you missed it, go back and check it out. Beth did an incredible job speaking about provision, how God provided for his people, heard their wants and their needs, and was a willing provider for his people in the wilderness for 40 years and preparing them to enter into the promised land where it would not operate like Egypt with the intense irrigation systems and the easy water. They were going to have to live off of dependence on God in the promised land. And he was training them to see them as a provider and to turn to him as a provider. And so that, she did a great job unpacking that last week. Check it out. This week we're going to talk about worship, how, what worship was in Egypt and how God called them to something that was distinctly different. And so to do this, we're going to kind of, again, unpack what the Egyptian world was like in regards to worship. And, you know, in Egypt, they had a God for everything. They really did. They had a whole pantheon of gods. And here's the good part about this. They saw God in everything, which is awesome. But then they made everything God, which was not exactly ideal for like, the way of understanding the world as it was meant to be. But they definitely were a very religious people, and they worshipped everything you could imagine. Uh, you know, we, it was one of the things that Egypt's most famous for is obviously these pyramids. And the pyramids tell a little bit of a story of kind of what worship was like in their, in their culture. First of all, they had a creation myth in Egypt that really, the world, there was nothing. There was just chaos. This might sound kind of familiar. But then a ben-ben, which was a point of creation or a point of earth, came out of the chaos and created dry land in the midst of the chaos. And so they really believed that like, a point into the like, creation was like a point that kind of came out of the chaos and rose up. So pyramids are almost like a point into the next world. They believe that this little ben-ben would be a point into the next world, a point of creation that will enter into eternity. You know, we communicated, we communicate a lot through ideas when we talk about God. This is how we kind of talk about God. When you ask me who God is, I'd say he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, right? Or I say he's loving or he's caring. I give words that kind of communicate an idea about what God is like. This is how we communicate a lot with ideas. They did not communicate necessarily with, idea, like with words about God, what they did is they told stories about what their gods were like, very elaborate stories that would help them understand what God was like. And this is interesting because a pyramid was a story being written by Pharaoh about himself. And if you were to go inside, there was all kinds of stories about Pharaoh and his greatness. And he would write all, and he was the author of his own story. 
which is kind of nice. I hope at the end of my life, I get to tell people how great I was instead of having to count on other people because you can really bend the truth all you want, right? Well, they were the author of their own stories. And so creation is all about authorship because the great storyteller of creation, whoever has authorship over that, has authority to tell that story. So the, the pharaohs took authority of their own stories and they wrote their own stories in the midst of this. And they did this through very symbolic ways. The author has the authority. It was interesting. They would start building these pyramids. The day that a pharaoh came, was born, they would start building it, and they would finish building it on the day he died and start building the next pyramid. So as long as the pharaoh was alive, his pyramid was being built and being worked on and being added to, and the story was being developed. And then when he passed on, the next one would start. And these were actually three consecutive pharaohs, and they aligned with the stars the way that they even built them in location because they had such a picture All of life was oriented to the next life. All of life was oriented to the next life. And what this meant in Egyptian culture is that you've got to get everything that you can because you take it with you. And so when the pharaohs were buried, they were buried with all of their riches. You know, they believed that they'd have to cross the chaos again to go into the next life. And some of them were even buried with boats to make crossing the chaos a little bit easier. So they really were oriented to the next world. So people would try to get what they could in this life because that's what you would take with you into the next life. So powerful that they were interested in the next life, but very different from how we would approach that. When Pharaoh died, his celebration ends, and the next Pharaoh's celebration begins. You know, they did this not just, you know, not every Pharaoh had a pyramid, but they started, they all had their own temples. They kind of evolved this. They all had their own burial places. And so this philosophy, and the pyramids were built before Abraham even entered into the, even entered into Egypt, even before Joseph was born there. The pyramids already existed. So this philosophy had been passed down and passed down and passed down. And so they were building temples. Ramses was building temples at the time of the Israelites. And Ramses was the Pharaoh who was there. This is a picture of Ramses with his, uh, his shepherd crook and his flail. And it's important to understand what Pharaoh means. Pharaoh does not mean king. It means the great house. Once upon a time, Egypt was a bunch of independent houses. They were wealthy. They, 42 gnomes at the time was what they were called. And eventually they elected one guy. They kind of brought one guy and came under power under one guy. And he became the great house. And then the great house became the great house over a whole region. And then they conquered other areas. And so he was Pharaoh over the whole region. But he was known as the great house. He was both high priest and Didi, they saw Pharaoh as a god, and he would tell you in his own story told about himself how he was a god, and he would elaborate on that in stories and pictures about himself, showing his greatness in the temples that they built, honoring their pharaohs. Here he is pictured with a shepherd's crook and a flail, and it's funny because like, uh, you know, Beth pointed out last week that they, you know, Egyptians didn't do the shepherding work, it was below them, and then, you know, building bricks was like the lowest, like, but it's almost like the story of the shepherd being told by someone who's clearly never done the job, you know, because uh, like when we think of what a shepherd does, this, like, he rules from on high, he rules from afar, he doesn't really get involved with the muck of the people. That is not what a shepherd does. So it's a very interesting picture of a shepherd, one who's given the crook but wants none of the day-to-day responsibilities of that. You know, the temples that they built were really interesting, and that's a sense that you will see that some of it may resemble some of the things that we hear about in Israel. Like they had a three-tier temple. They had the outer courts, the inner courts, and the place where they did the sacrifices for their God at the core. And they, starting with it, they had this gigantic gate. And it was symbolic, because there was no wall that surrounded the temple. There was no wall. They just built a giant gate out front. And this was very symbolic, because this was huge. I mean, if I was standing there, I'd probably be up to there. 
What the gate symbolizes when there's no wall, because it's not protecting anything, is it's Ramses' temple. They're showing you how great and how mighty and how big Ramses is. When he enters into his temple, this is how big the door needs to be for Ramses, because he's so great. And so they build the symbolic doors to honor their great king, who would, not king, Pharaoh, the great Pharaoh would have to come in, who's both God and high priest, to enter into his own temple. And then they would enter that and kind of come into this area that was the outer courts. And here's the thing about the outer courts. Only nobility and royalty could even enter the outer courts. Your average Egyptian never was inside the temple. And I can tell you this, no Israelite was ever in the temple, except maybe Moses, who was part of the royal family. He's possibly the only person who even had a picture of what the worship was like in Egypt at its core, in the temples that they had. But they would kind of worship in these outer courts. And look at these giant pharaohs and gods that they would make. They were huge. They were huge. Everything there was huge. Then they would walk inside the temples, and they would have these columns, these pillars that would rise up. Sometimes they would rise up so high. And here's the crazy thing. This was built in the floodplain. So during the times of the great waters coming in, the temple would rise above. And because it was built with stone, it wouldn't wash away. And the waters would recede, and they'd go back, and they'd worship in the temple again. But they had all kinds of carvings that told the stories. They told the stories of the pharaohs and of their gods. And then they would bring to the area where they would do sacrifices that would face the edge of life and look out into the wilderness. And they would worship their gods of life while facing the dead area. You know, the temple had all these carvings that were so elaborate. You know, the outer courts were for nobility. The inner courts were for the priests. And their temples told the stories of their gods. And they took time to carve the stories of their gods. It is not easy to chisel into stone, and they were covered in chiselings. This is every story you could possibly imagine carved into these walls, often built in the floodplain, but built with stone. And stone is really important. This is why it's so important. They carve these things into stone. Look how elaborate and how intricate. Imagine how much time that would take to carve all that into stone, right? The whole life of a pharaoh, they'd be working on his temples or on his pyramids, and all of it was built with stone, all of it. And there's a reason for this. They believed that stone was eternal. Anything that was built with stone lasts well beyond this world, right? It's eternal. So they would build things in stone. The, the, temple, the pyramids were stone. The temples were stone. The carvings, the stories, because the stories would last forever. And it was important that their stories and the legacy of them would last forever. And you don't just carve into stone carelessly, right? You don't doodle with chisels and stone. Everything that is carved is very intentional. They want to be very clear about what they are communicating about their Pharaoh and about their gods. And again, who has authority is the author of these stories, who tells them what to carve, gets to tell the story and has authority over all that story. Nothing is done recklessly in these temples. Even though there's tons of carvings, you'd think somebody would sneak in some doodles. No, it's all very intentional. Here's how big these statues of Ramses are and of other gods that they worship. That, that is my 6'4 leader, Dutchman, who is incredible. And we really owe a lot of what I learned about Egypt to this man, George. He is a, he is a tall man. I am very short in comparison to him. He does not even come to the foot of Ramses. And that's very, on, that's very much on purpose. Not even up to the foot of Ramses. This is the tallest man in our group. 
This piece of granite is, from what I understand, I think it was the largest single piece of granite that they think humans have maybe ever moved. And they don't even know how they got it there, and it had toppled. But it's the largest solo piece of granite. It used to be a part of a huge statue. I mean, just look at this, entering into the temple areas, the pharaohs that guarded the doors. Everything was designed to make you feel small. This is very intentional about the temple. As you walk in, Pharaoh is huge. You are small. The gods are big. You are not important. And they wanted very an image and in feeling for anybody who entered that to feel the weight of that. I do not belong in the temple of the Pharaoh because he is great and I am nothing. They wanted you to feel the weight of that as you stood next to it and to see how great they were. So how aware of the worship were the Israelites? You know, they weren't allowed into the temples, but they were very, very, very familiar with, their, with the gods of Egypt. In fact, there's this interesting kind of vision that, is, that Ezekiel has that kind of tells a story of how the Israelites were interacting with the idols when they were living in Egypt. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. And I said to them, each of you, get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not file yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. This is a powerful kind of picture of the behind the scenes of maybe what was going on in the 400 years where they were in this captivity. They are bought in heavily to the idol worship in Egypt. And it sounds like God was almost trying to deliver them before they were ready. They wouldn't let go of the idols. And they don't really let go of them very quickly out in the wilderness either, as we see with the golden calf, right? They had their tentacles kind of dug into this. They are bought into the worship of Egypt in a big way. And when the people finally reached their breaking point and they cried out, I think it's really important that we notice this. They were surrounded by gods in Egypt, surrounded by them. But only one God heard the cry, Right? They're crying out, and Beth really pointed out that they didn't necessarily cry out for the God of Jacob. They just cried out for help to the myriad, the host of gods that might listen. And one God heard, the true God heard. You know, they cried out. They were surrounded by gods, but only one God had compassion on their situation and their status. And one God answered, the true God. And this is the story of God's deliverance, right? He calls them out of Egypt in mighty ways, and it's powerful the way that they start to be re-imaged, the pictures of God, and we get this from the Psalms that come a little bit later, but some of the pictures that they start to understand of who God is in contrast to the gods of Egypt, and notice this, lift up your heads, you gates. What's this mean, lift up your heads, you gates? Your gates, these giant gates of Egypt are too small because the king of glory doesn't fit through your tiny little gates that Pharaoh walks through. Lift up your heads, you gates. You be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The gates literally have to be raised if the king of glory is going to enter into this place. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Let, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And he comes in in power to Egypt. For great is the Lord, the most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Here is the king of glory, the powerful one who stands out 
from those in Egypt. You know, it's interesting. My, our guide there really talked about walking through the water must have felt a little bit like a temple experience in the sense that they were walking through the giant pillars of the waves on both sides. And they knew they didn't belong in the presence of God. And here they are walking, you know, their first time maybe entering a temple is walking through the sea. As they are going towards God and he is leading them, they are walking into the intimacy of God. And it must have been terrifying because the pillars are on both sides. The greatest things they had ever seen were the temples. And here's something greater on both sides of them. And who, you know, when someone doesn't belong in the temple and not a true worshiper, the waves came and took the Egyptians out. They did not belong in the Holy of Holies place. So the king of glory, who's too big for the largest of gates, comes and shows his awesome power and might over all the gods, even but especially, really, Pharaoh. And how does he lead? How is this God different from the gods of Egypt? Well, he goes about distinguishing himself immediately, and he gives a familiar picture as a shepherd, but not the kind of shepherd Pharaoh is. He's the shepherd who heard the cry. He's the shepherd who leads them by cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He's the, sh- the shepherd who sits in the center of their camp and guards them from their enemies at night. He's the shepherd who cares for their needs by leading them to water and by leading them to food and that they don't have any wants. He's the true shepherd, not the shepherd who 100% treated them ruthlessly when they were in Egypt, treated them ruthlessly. Here's the true shepherd who intimately leads his people through the desert. He invites them into the courts of his tabernacle. When he does create a structure of worship, who's invited into the outer courts? All the Israelites. They all join in the worship. He wants to be near them, and he wants them to be near him. And who does he give the picture of how he wants the tabernacle to look like? To the one man who probably has an idea of what what it's supposed to look like, Moses. And then stone. I think this is really interesting. God does not go about building elaborate temples for himself. In fact, when David wants to do it, he doesn't seem all that like pressed to have a temple for himself. How does he use stone in the wilderness? I was thinking about it, and I could really only come up with two major ways that stone played an important role. Remember, stone was the most important, the eternal thing in Egypt. Well, I think it's interesting. He gives him two tablets of stone, right? The real clear time that he talks about stone. And what's on the tablets? The word of God how to love God, and how to love each other. Because it's going to last forever. It's going to last forever. Their worship for God and the person standing next to them are eternal. These temples, they'll fade. We're uncovering these temples of Pharaoh. They've been wiped by the dirt, and it's as hard as we can to kind of make it look like it did back then because they've been destroyed. The word of God lasts forever. And Ezekiel 20, 10 through 11 says, Therefore I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws by which a person who obeys them will live. He offers them life in stone. How else is, it to, how else is stone? You know, how would the story be told? If it, Moses is very clear from God that you're to have no graven images. What are graven images? All the stories that were carved on the temples. How are they to tell the story? How are they to tell the story? How will people know what God did if they don't have temples and stories and stones? That's the only way the story gets passed on. Who's to have authorship over the story? Who's to have control? It's interesting, right? He gives stones of pi- big piles of stones that are Ebenezer's. Right? They just lump a bunch of stones together to say, here, God did something powerful. And you say, but, that's, who ha- but how is he going to control how the story is told? Well, he's not going to control it. 
Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and their children after them. Live out the stories. Teach the stories. Tell the stories. You are the message. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to hold it close to control it. The word of God and you are how we're going to tell the stories. I love how the New Testament elaborates on this in a powerful way in 2 Corinthians. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. God has a very different way of telling the story. It's to change your heart and let you go be the story. You know, he reorders worship with intimacy. We talked about how intimately he shepherded them. He built covenants with his people. He made promises that he would withhold. You know, that's not something the gods of Egypt did. You basically worshiped them and hoped they came through. You tried to get their attention. You tried to get them to notice you. But God says, I will make promises and I will be faithful. Here's what I will do for you. And I promise to do it. And here's what you will do for me. And we will be in relationship, in a covenant relationship. And covenants grow thin when the promises aren't kept, and they grow strong when the promises are kept. And he made deep, rich covenants with his people, and God was always faithful to his end. What other nation is so great as to have their God near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? How powerful is this? This is them speaking as they're walking through the wilderness. How great is our God that he makes himself available so that when we pray, he hears us. We cried out for hundreds of years and only one God heard. Only one God. And he listens and makes covenants and has relationship. How powerful is this? It even goes as far as to say the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. How intimate is that? That is not the picture of the gods of Egypt that they had. No one was face-to-face with those gods. No one was even face-to-face with Pharaoh except for the highest of the highest. And in capacity, he grows our capacity. Deuteronomy 36 says, Lord, your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. God changes our very ability to live for him. He says, I will give you a new capacity. I will give you that you can be like me. God gives us the capacity to take on his very character. Again, this is worlds different from what they experienced in Egypt. Egypt's worship was built to make you feel small, but God lifts us up. He says, I'm making you a son and a daughter. You will be like me. You will be my message bearer. You will be part of my inheritance. You will be my children. This is a very different picture from anything they've ever experienced, and it would have been exploding their minds. This is hard to comprehend. God is lifting them up to say, I see the dignity that you have. I've made you in my image. I don't need to have carved stories showing pictures of what I look like. You want to see what I look like? Look at yourself. I made you in my image. You will carry my story. You will carry that. You will be my messengers to the end of the earth. And he's saying this long before Jesus. This is in the wilderness he is saying these things to them. First Peter really elaborates on this in a powerful way in the New Testament. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, 
are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the same calling out that he did through Jesus that he did once upon a time in Egypt where he called them out to be a people, to set them apart, to be messengers to a world. And he reinforced it in a powerful way with Jesus to conquer death to say, you will be my messengers again of the greatness that I've done. And you will be living stones. And what are stones? Eternal. You will stand forever, stacked together as the place of worship. Where does God dwell the most? In the holy of holies. And we are the part of the temple. His favorite place to dwell is in our midst, in the living stones that he has created. And he's blending, I love this, he's blending secular and, look at this, a royal secular priesthood, holy Holy nation. He's saying you will blend these things. You will walk with, your, with Jesus in your heart, and you will make these places holy. The nations and the royal priesthoods, you will blend it all together because you carry God with you wherever you go. And it's the culmination of what he meant for his people all along when he called them out of Egypt. We are called to take the passion that the Egyptians had for worship and focus it on the true God and his eternal purposes. It's awesome that the Egyptians had a great passion for worship. They just had who they were worshiping all wrong. God says, take that passion and direct it to me, the one who's worthy of it. And not only that, for the eternity that they're hoarding for, you don't need to hoard for it because you're not taking your treasure with you. What you're taking with you is the person to your left and to your right. So pour out for eternal purposes and these living stones that I've created. Unlike Egypt, we don't really see God everywhere necessarily in our culture. We don't have eyes to see that in that way. But in the absence of reliance of God, I think we take the weight of responsibility on ourselves much like Pharaoh. I think we make very much of ourselves in this culture. We carry a heavy weight when we don't rely on God to provide for us. And we aren't built to handle that kind of weight. We were built to worship. And here's the thing. The way God lifts us up, there's only really one appropriate response that we were wired for, and that is, like, take that passion that Egypt had for its gods and apply it to the true God and the eternity that God has designed. We are called to be worshipers because he lifts us up, and we, in turn, say, we can't even handle the weight. We give it back to you, God. We give you back the glory, the one that you bestowed us with glory, made us in your image, and we say, God, we don't even deserve it. We give it back to you. And so, This great God who brings himself down to -to face-to-face level with us, we say we'll get lower and say to you, God. We kneel before him. We bless him. God has lifted us up above our station, and the only proper response is to bow before the king of glory. And this is what they did in the desert. They learned how to truly worship God. Part of loving God is loving the things that he has built to last forever. I just want to, this psalm is what I kind of want to start to wrap up with. How do we worship God? The scripture's full of it, right? It's full of how to worship God. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. 
For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established and it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. This is the God we serve. And he stands out so different from the gods of Egypt. And he is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our praise. The gates can't contain him. He busts into the room and we all are just caught up in his wonder. So my question for you this morning is, do you realize that you are a walking story bearer? He didn't carve a bunch of images to tell his story anymore. He gave you to the world to say, you will carry my story to the world around you. My other question, what does it look like for you to bless the Lord on a daily basis? So we're called to worship in response to the greatness of God. What does that look like for you? How do you do that on a daily basis? Let me pray for us as the worship team comes back up. Mighty God, we are humbled at your greatness. And we are humbled that you have built us to last forever. Lord, that we are living stones in your temple. How powerful is that? Father, thank you for the dignity that you bestow on us. Thank you for how you have treated us by lowering yourself to be at our level. Lord, we want to lower ourselves to say, you, God, are worthy of all praise. And Lord, it's too much weight for us to carry alone, so we give it back to you. We say, God, you are mighty and worthy and the only one capable of carrying these things. Lord, we look to you. We honor you. We bless you. We praise you. Help us to have eyes to do this on a regular basis. Throughout our day, may we be praising you and lifting you up and reminding ourselves of who is the one in charge of all these things, the one who the gates can't contain because you're too, the king of glory is too great for them. Lord, thank you for the way that you walk intimately with us, even though we are so unworthy of that. Lord, we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.